You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 5. Thank you for allowing uh, me to be gone last week. Uh, Tina and I got to go up and see the kids at college at Cedarville and... and, uh, on Sunday, Lucas, one of my sons, is leading worship at a small church up in the Dayton area, and I've uh, got to visit that church. I actually preached uh, there at that church with Lucas, my son, leading the worship, and it was such a, a sweet and encouraging time uh, for me. And then Tina and I went to the uh, gorge uh, for a few days to hike and uh, enjoy some time in the fall weather. It was a beautiful time. It's good to be back with you today, and it's good to get back into Daniel chapter 5 is our text. We won't read the entire thing, we'll leave out uh, a portion of it, but enough to get the story this morning. Daniel chapter 5 and verse 1, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom." Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Now, verses 10 through 16, the queen comes in and shares of her knowledge of Daniel, who, a man who can interpret dreams. And so Daniel is called in, and look at verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I'll read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, be kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, 
so that he dealt proudly. He was brought down from this kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart though you knew all this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk from wine from them, and you've praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter, many. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning, and and once again, a very ancient text. Um, We pray for your help in understanding it by your Spirit, and that you would give us ears to hear. I pray that you would use me, Lord, as your servant this morning. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease, and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, once again, we encountered perhaps the main theme of the book of Daniel right there in verse 21, that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom He will. It is the truth, once again, that the God of heaven is also the God of the kingdom of man. Daniel wrote in chapter 2, verse 21, that God who changes times and seasons, he also removes kings and sets up kings. In fact, God's ability to set up kings and remove them is so effective, as Alistair Begg puts it so well, all it takes is for God to lift a finger and everything changes. In chapter 5, we are introduced to a ruler named Belshazzar who uh, literally appears and disappears in the span of one chapter. We're told in verse 2 that he is the son of 
Nebuchadnezzar, but in the Hebrew, that can mean grandson, or even more generally, it can mean uh, predecessor, if you will. But what's striking is not just that he's a predecessor to Nebuchadnezzar, but that he is the last of the kings of Babylon. Here we are in chapter 5, we're already at the end of Babylon. Baldwin a commentator notes that it is surprising to us when the narrative leaps from the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, whom all of this started with, this exile, to the very end of the Babylonian Empire, to the, in fact, to the last night of it, and the last ruler uh, who was killed. And we, we reminds us again of, of this theme over and over again that, that from beginning to end, God is in control. And we glimpsed it all along. And at the end of chapter 1, we were told that Daniel was there until the first year of, the, of King Cyrus. In other words, long after Babylon was gone. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of that multi-metal statue representing different kingdoms, that there would be a kingdom, kingdoms after Babylon. Chapter 3, God thwarts Nebuchadnezzar's edict that everyone is to worship the golden image that he set up. Chapter 4, God drives him right off the throne and out into the pasture. And in chapter 5, Babylon's kingdom comes to its last night. It's not a surprise to us because Babylon, which seems all-powerful in this moment to the exiled people of God, just all-powerful, in reality, is only temporary. It is the most high God who rules the kingdom of mankind. We're not told until the end of the chapter here who will rule next. Verse 31 says that it's Darius the Mede who received the kingdom. And that verse seems to confirm what we know of Babylonian history, which records that on the night, perhaps, of Belshazzar's big party here in chapter 5, that the moment that this is happening, that the Medes and Persians are already outside of the city walls. They've already surrounded the, the city. They're, they're literally outside organizing in this attack. And Belshazzar is so sure, felt secure enough with behind the mighty walls of Babylon that he was not concerned about it. The city was protected with these thick walls. They had enough food that they could have lasted for years inside the walls. There was a river that ran through the middle of the city that provided them all the water that they need. It was secure enough that even though enemies were outside the walls, they could gather for a party and not worry. Who would have thought that the Medes and Persians would literally divert the course of the river lowering the water levels so that they could sneak under the walls and take Babylon, but they did. You see, but all of this is not the point of the text. The concern of the text is, is a testimony to how God demolishes human arrogance and pride. Isaiah prophesied this about Babylon some years earlier, Isaiah 47. He said, you felt secure in your wickedness. 
You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am and there's no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. And see, Belshazzar and Babylon, the nation that he led here, are, are perhaps the supreme example of uh, the New Testament example of the parable Jesus told of the rich fool. Remember that in Luke 12 when he said to him in that parable, you fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be, Jesus said. So this is the theme of God humbling, judging an arrogant king and arrogant people here in chapter 5. Let's walk through the story briefly. Three headings that uh, I'm going to be using from Dale Ralph Davis's commentary on Daniel. First, we see human defiance met by divine opportunity. Defiance met by opportunity. That's the theme of verses 1 through 9. We read there of this party, and uh, the description of it is one that tells us this is an event of, of great opulence, of great luxury, of great extravagance, and, and most significantly, this event in which there's no fault whatsoever of God. The Most High God, King Belshazzar, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of a thousand. The Hebrews suggest that this is a theatrical moment for him. This is about him. This is meant to be a display of Belshazzar's incredible inflated ego of himself. Ferguson wrote this. He said, all eyes are on Belshazzar, which is exactly what he wants. Before the gaze of a thousand pair of eyes, he begins to drink himself under the table as a demonstration of his bravado. And you see, the more he drank, the less restrained he came. Verse 2, he called for the vessels of gold and silver that... You remember chapter 1 told us that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple of Jerusalem. These were vessels that were in the very temple some 50 years earlier. And so they bring them all out. There have been thousands of these vessels. Verse 4 says that they took them and they drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, and wood, and stone. And you might say to yourself, well... Well, what, what's the big deal about golden cups from the temple? Well, Daniel explains it verse, down in verse 22 and 23. He said, Belshazzar, you've not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have, here's the key, lifted up your eyes or lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. In other words, he's telling us that Belshazzar knew exactly where these cups came from. He knew exactly what he was doing when he did this. He was mocking God. These vessels were not just a contempt for God's, uh, this was not just a contempt for God's vessels. This was a contempt for God himself. He, he's proclaiming, mocking that 
Yahweh, Israel's God, whose vessels he's now abusing and using for uh, idolatry, insulting, that this God had no power whatsoever over Babylon. It's kind of a picture for us, I think, again, of Romans 1, which we've seen many times, that although they knew God, they did not honor Him or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It's in this darkened state of mind he has literally no fear of God, no fear of judgment, no fear for his life. Just like the rich man in that parable Jesus told, soul, you have, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. beg in his way, writes again, here is a man who knows he is a success, laughing at God, using God's gifts to declare his rebellion against and autonomy from his creator. But all it takes is for the God he is mocking to lift a finger. And that is what happens, isn't it? Verse 5, immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. When it says there that his limbs gave away, it's a euphemism it's a it's a saying if you will it literally reads something like that the knots of his loins were loosened this is the writer's way of i think poking fun at belshazzar this is someone who's mocking god and yet in this moment he is so afraid that he can't control his bowels And it's amazing how quickly one can become religious, isn't it? He summons all of his enchanters and astrologers and wise men and promises them this purple outfit and golden chain and a position of third in charge if they can read this and interpret this handwriting on the wall. But as we've seen several times already in the book of Daniel, they are not able to. Verse 9, then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. Sometimes God aggravates our helplessness by exposing the emptiness of our own resources. In other words, he brings us to the end of ourselves. I mean, here is an empty, powerless, pagan religion, but, but it really doesn't matter what it is, if it's that or not. At the root of it, it it's, it's, it's self-dependence, isn't it? It's pride. A sense in which you don't think that you need God 
But you're doing just fine. You, you got this under control. You got yourself. Don't, don't be surprised, though, when God aggravates this by sending some things or something that loosens the knots of your loins. It reminds us, once again, of the uselessness, the emptiness of, of trusting in anyone other than the Most High of Heaven, doesn't it? This is where the divine opportunity comes in, you see, of the point. It's in verse 9. It's in the fact that Belshazzar has no answers. He, he has no answers. His religion has failed him. His, uh, he's reduced to, to, uh, to this sniffling mess uh, which there is no one else to turn. He's like the prodigal son who's, who's found himself in the pigsty. There's no other resources. He's come to the end of himself. The very foundations of his life has shaken. The presence of God has brought a state of shock to his whole being. And therefore, you, you understand that he's on the edge of hope. In many ways, the, the handwriting on the wall here, though terrorizing, is a merciful kind of terror to him because it's precisely at the helplessness that he's at is the open door for any kind of hope for him. Remind you of our Lord who said this, didn't he? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, the bankrupt in spirit, who, who recognize that they're at the end of themselves, that there's no way they can save themselves, who find every other path in their life a dead end that has emptied them. What a blessing it is to get to this point because for theirs is the kingdom, Jesus said. Whenever God brings a man to the end of himself and smashes all of his idols, it, it is a huge opportunity if only he'll see it he's on the precipice of deliverance if he'll humble himself and if he'll look to God in faith it's worth asking this morning has this not happened at some point in your life has it not happened maybe where you would say that you saw the proverbial handwriting on the wall the truth about you the truth about your sin, that the wages of sin is death, that the only hope for salvation whom we've been singing about this morning is Jesus Christ, his son, and what he's done for us. Have you come to that place? Let it be this morning. Let this be the handwriting on the wall for you today because Jesus Christ is the only one who can save. Amen? He's our only hope. That is where the story goes. We see, secondly, the human desperation is met by a divine foolishness. And I'll explain that. A divine foolishness. We're, we're told in verses 10 through 16 that there perhaps was such a ruckus in the banquet hall that uh, the queen was... Uh, awaken the queen mother comes in and again the Hebrew allows for room here she Ferguson I think rightly notes she may have been the grandmother of Belshazzar 
She may have been Nebuchadnezzar's wife, in other words. Such members of the royal family, they continued to have influence. Um, And so, but whoever she is, she's familiar with Daniel. Verse 11, she says, there's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods in the days of your father, Light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show you the interpretation. Now, there's some interesting plays on words here. Verse 12, that phrase, solve problems, is actually the same Hebrew phrase that was used back in verse 6, which was to loosen the knots of the loins. <laughs> she, she knows of someone who can loosen the knots of his loins, you see. Verse 16, when Daniel comes before the king, he says, the king says to him, I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. The phrase is used again. It's, it's, it's I can understand. He's saying, I understand you can loosen my knots and my loins. Al Walters notes in his work on this that, that we must look at the story from the perspective of the, the exiled a Jew who had suffered much under the hands of, of the Babylonians. This king has insulted their God. Uh, the, their, the handwriting on the wall appears. He's so frightened. The knots of his loins were, were untied. The queen mother comes in and recommends Daniel to him as someone who can untie his knots for him, perhaps fix his loose bowels. And then finally, the king comes face to face with Daniel and, and, sex, and says, in effect, I understand that you can untie my knots for me. It would have been eliciting laughter among the people of God reading this story. Not for the sake of humor, you you understand, that's that's not the main point, but to underscore the sovereignty of God before whom the mightiest of kings, the mightiest of world leaders on the planet with a moment's notice can be reduced to frail and fearful men by this God. Don't forget that no matter how powerful The rulers of the world seem to be, they are no match for our God. Verse 13, Daniel's brought in before the king. The king engages a bit of a put down as well. He says to him, you are Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. In other words, he's saying to him, you're just one of those exiles. (laughs) Notice what the writer does. In verses 12 and 13, notice how he mentions Daniel's name five times in those two verses. Over the top, kind of a repetition of his name. And I I think he's doing that to show that Belshazzar's sure help in this matter that he is facing is Daniel. So let's get this straight. Belshazzar has despised Daniel's God, he has demeaned Daniel's status, you're just one of those exiles, and yet ironically, Daniel is the only one who can help him. 
Davis uh, puts it in this pithy quote, the only help for Belshazzar was a cast-off Jew whose God he despised. Boy, it's worth thinking about today that church, you know the same is true for us, isn't it? Our only hope is in a cast-off Jew named Jesus. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, he said, the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is where that divine foolishness comes in because Paul reminds us there in the New Testament that the only hope to keep from perishing is Jesus Christ, isn't he? And the only way for a perishing people to be saved is to look to this crucified Messiah who's a stumbling block to the Jews. They couldn't imagine looking to someone who was cursed hanging on a tree. It was a folly of the Gentiles to believe this. So the Jews are demanding more signs. The Greeks are seeking wisdom. Uh, We might say America is seeking therapy today. But we preach Christ crucified, church. Why? Because the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We're not so much different than Belshazzar at the end of the day, in that a cast-off Jew of the God you and I have despised in our sins is our only hope. Daniel here is pointing us to Jesus, isn't he? The foolishness of God it's the power of God for those who, who believe. It's, it's the stone that the builders rejected, right? That's the capstone that is Christ. It's, it's the narrow gate which few willingly want to go through. Jesus Christ is our only hope. But beware of this opportunity before you. In the final section, we see human Denseness met by divine judgment. This is verses 17 through 31. Let me summarize for you. Daniel, after refusing Belshazzar's rewards, verses 18 through 21, he reminds him of his father or grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 18, how God gave him greatness, glory, and majesty, but and power, verse 19, but how Nebuchadnezzar had become proud and arrogant. Verse 20, when his heart was lifted up, his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was humbled by God. He was driven from the palace to the pasture he says maybe Belshazzar would hear this maybe he would get this message that God can take an arrogant king and make him like a beast of the field but Belshazzar didn't get it in fact the scripture says I I think that he would not get it it's Daniel's point there in verse 22 and you his son Belshazzar have not 
humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. Notice that his problem was not his ignorance about these things. That wasn't the trouble. It was about his stubbornness, his disrespect, his rebellion against the God of heaven by using those temple vessels and toasting the so-called gods of Babylon. He was thumbing his nose against the Lord of heaven. This is where human denseness is about to be met with this judgment, divine judgment. Daniel explains Verse 25 through 28, these mysterious words on the wall, mene, mene, tekel, and parson. Here's his explanation. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. In other words, Belshazzar has been numbered and weighed and divided. God has his number. <laughs> he's, a, he's a lightweight. And his kingdom has come to an end. And then it's going to be divided between the Medes and the Persians. Verse 30 says that very night he was killed. Pay attention to the lesson this is reminding us of. It's so true. Having clear information doesn't guarantee a right response to it, does it? It's a sobering truth, but it is. I think it's the mistake that so often is made in our culture because we're told all of the time that the answer to our social and moral and political problems is more education. It's education that's going to bring transformation. But Daniel's point is, no, Belshazzar knew and it didn't matter. Truth is important, isn't it? But we must be able to receive it and respond to it. And once again, this is where we're reminded of of the help that we need from our God. It's the promise of Ezekiel who said in Ezekiel 11, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them and I'll remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. Faithful churches are right We're right to emphasize the preaching and teaching of God's word, but we must pray earnestly, church, for ourselves, for those around us, for those in the community, that God would cause his word to produce in us obedience and Christ-likeness and fruit. Because it comes from him, doesn't it? Is a story not a mirror of our own society? Is it not a, a picture of that? I think about Jesus saying that just in the days of Noah, he could have said, well, in the, just in the days of Belshazzar as well. M- much of our world, much of the affluent West that we live in is having a party and they're eating and they're drinking and they're using all of God's gifts that he has given them to ignore and mock his truth. 
Not realizing that there is a God who has created them, who has given them these very gifts. He even says that giving Belshazzar the very breaths that he has taken, the very breath that you have is given to you by God, a God in whom you will stand before and give an account. And yet people today, they take what God has given them and then they reject him. They want a God who agrees with them and how they ought to behave. They want a God who answers to them rather than being one who answers to God. And God says to all people today, just as He's saying through this, don't ever say that you didn't know, that you weren't aware of this. The handwriting is on the wall. Isn't it true in our day, church? The handwriting is on the wall. It's plain to see. You remember what Paul said? We're almost finished. Acts 17. He said, God commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him, raising that man from the dead. In the life, in the death, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has declared there is a judgment coming. We do not know when, but he clearly says it is a fixed day. The handwriting is on the wall. All it takes is for God to lift a finger. And Jesus will return for judgment. The world scoffs at that message, don't they? You will be scoffed at too for not joining in the party. And you will be scoffed at for preaching that our only hope for the world is this cast-off Jew who was crucified, buried, and raised on the third day. But I tell you, church, he is our only hope. And so let us be faithful. Let us be faithful. For salvation is found in him and in him alone. Lord, once again, in in a very ancient story, we kind of come face to face with ourselves and with our own days and times. Lord, please open our own eyes, open the eyes of our church, open the eyes of those in our community and world that there is a most high God you who rules and whom we must give an account. And we are thankful of today that we have more light of your revelation and we live on this side of the cross when we can see what you have done for us in Jesus. 
So help our eyes to be ever on Him. Help our, our mouths to be opened and speak of the good news of Jesus and this fixed day that is coming. That all people would trust in You as their Savior and Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.